support for True Crime Fan Club is brought to you by Incipio. Founded in 1999, Incipio was born with a love for tech and the then-novel idea to protect your phone. Now, 20 years later, they're still innovating and designing cases made with you in mind. I don't often talk about how I go into research these cases, but basically I use my phone a lot, and I really need my phone to stay charged while I'm investigating these true crimes. Basically, my phone is my accomplice in solving and investigating these crimes, and Incipio protects. It's made with the truth in mind. So that's why I fell in love with the duo for MagSafe. It combines minimalistic design with maximum protection. With up to 12 feet of drop protection and integrated MagSafe technology, your phone will be fully charged and protected from the toughest drops. So if you're like my husband who thinks he doesn't need the new iPhone, I am the opposite. I've already gotten my new iPhone 13. So no worries. The Duo is also available for iPhone 12, 11, 10, SE, 8, and 7 series. All Duo cases are wireless charging and 5G compatible and backed by their lifetime guarantee. And you're lucky because it's now available to purchase at your local Verizon or online at verizon.com. I would like to say now that if you happen to hear little squeals and yells in the background of this episode, that's my daughter Tilden. And I'm sorry, it can't be helped sometimes. So I hope and I thank you for understanding. Explicit content is found in this episode. So listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Murder by vehicle occurs in small numbers every year. These are often tracked as a vehicle accident, so good numbers are not available for how many people are killed this way each year. Many of the cases are the end result of a domestic argument or dispute, or as a result of inebriation. It appears this is a predominantly female chosen method for murder. The two cases discussed today were apparently done in a heat of passion. Okay. On to the show. Keisha Jones of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was raised by her single mother, who had gotten pregnant with Keisha at age 15. The mother and daughter had a very close relationship, and although they struggled financially, her mother tried to give her daughter everything she needed. Keisha helped her mother with her younger siblings when, at age 16, she told her mother she was pregnant. Her mom was obviously concerned. She wanted her daughter to get a degree to have a better life, but Keisha assured her she would go back to school. However, she never did. Keisha had another child with her boyfriend, James Hayes. James extolled Keisha's many virtues, both as a mother and as a person. She walked the children to school and, even though money was tight, took them skating and bowling, trying to give them more than she'd ever had. James said, if anyone else was suffering and didn't have food, she would go shopping and buy them groceries. Although she was a caring and nurturing mother, Keisha was still young and enjoyed dressing up and going out. In 2003, she and James split up but remained close, particularly for the children. In 2004, a friend introduced Keisha, then 23, to 20-year-old Tyrone Taylor. It wasn't long before they were inseparable. James even said he was a little jealous of them, 
because they had the relationship he wished he had with Keisha. However, James was grateful for Tyrone because he was a good stepfather for his children, and the men often met to discuss punishments if one of the kids had done something bad. They were so close that James often kept all four kids for the weekend so Keisha could have some downtime. In 2005, Keisha and Tyrone had a child together, then another one in 2007. Tyrone was a devoted father and took the children to and from school. In April 2008, Tyrone and Keisha took a trip to Las Vegas, where they were married. Their family and friends back home were ecstatic because the couple seemed to be soulmates. On the 2011 Thanksgiving weekend, on November 27th, around 2 o'clock in the morning, Tyrone Taylor and Keisha Jones were driving home after spending the evening drinking and clubbing. The couple had gone to different clubs with their friends, but met up before it was time to head home. Tyrone was driving, Keisha was in the passenger seat, and her cousin was in the back seat. The couple were arguing at the last bar, and the argument spilled over into the car. Not long after he turned onto Morris Street, Tyrone stopped the 2002 Acura SUV and exited the vehicle, presumably to walk to his parents' house a few blocks away. Keisha then moved over into the driver's seat. In the back seat, her cousin was looking down at her cell phone when she felt the car accelerate. She looked up and, in horror, watched as Tyrone was struck by the SUV. Tyrone was partially on the hood of the vehicle as a car jumped a curb and hit the concrete wall of a nearby townhouse. When emergency responders arrived, Keisha was kneeling in broken glass, cradling Tyrone's body and crying hysterically. She told police officers it was an accident and that she had lost control of the car. However, officers noticed that the victim was not on the road. As paramedics worked on Tyrone, they realized it was futile. The impact of the crash had caused him to die instantly upon impact with the concrete wall. Keisha was transported to the emergency room to retrieve treatment for the cuts on her legs. Keisha's cousin told officers a slightly different story. She related the argument and then said that she had been screaming at Keisha to stop the car, but Keisha sped up. The damage done to the vehicle, along with the fact that the airbags were deployed, indicated the car had been traveling at a high rate of speed. After Keisha was treated at the hospital, she was taken to the police department, still crying hysterically. She did not seem to realize that Tyrone was dead, so when officers told her he had died at the scene, she began crying again. Officers left her in an interview room to allow her to compose herself. When she was calm enough to speak to officers, much of her story echoed the one account her cousin had already related to officers. According to Keisha, the argument began because she had been talking to another man. It became so heated that she told him to get out of the car, but she became even angrier when he complied. She said she got into the driver's seat so she could follow him and tell him to get into the car. However, she said the car just took off and her high heels got in her way. Her attorney said she was a tiny little thing at 5'6", and could barely see over the steering wheel. She told officers she was not even aware she had hit him. Investigators began to wonder if Keisha had intentionally struck her husband with the vehicle. 
Her blood alcohol content was well over the legal limit, and she was angry at the time of the accident. Later that afternoon, they discovered that a deli across the street from the accident had two separate security cameras. One camera provided a wide-angle view of the accident, while the other one was closer up. The grainy black-and-white footage showed the entire scene. The car pulls over to the side of the street, and an image is seen walking in front of the car. The figure walked out a few feet, then the car began moving towards the person walking. The car strikes the individual and begins accelerating. The video shows Tyrone trying to get off the car, but he was pinned to the hood. Then the car jumped the curb and struck the concrete wall. Although the video did not show Tyrone's body slamming into the wall, it did show the car shaking from the force of the impact. Keisha was arrested that same afternoon and charged with murder. Because Pennsylvania does not allow bond, she was immediately sent through the Philadelphia prison system to await trial. Although she had many supporters who did not think she could commit murder, including her defense attorneys, the video evidence was worrisome for them. Her attorney met with the prosecutor in an attempt to arrange a plea bargain. The DA's office asked if she wanted to plead guilty to third-degree murder, which carried a penalty of 15 to 30 years in prison. Keisha did not want to take that plea because she said any time she spent incarcerated was too long since she had children. She pleaded not guilty to the charges of first-degree murder and possession of an instrument of crime, the 2002 Acura. Her trial was held in October 2012, almost a year after she'd been sent to jail. After the jury was selected, but before opening statements began, a juror was dismissed and another sworn in. Both sides agreed to proceed with just one alternate juror. The prosecution's star witness was her cousin, who repeated her original statement to the police, but added that the fight was because Tyrone had accused Keisha of cheating. The video was also a feather in the prosecutor's cap. Jurors audibly gasped as they watched the video. Keisha testified on her own behalf, crying as she told jurors the killing was an accident. She claimed the gear shift was stuck and she had told that to the officers when being questioned. Keisha said the argument was not over accusations she was cheating, but was over her friendship with the cousin who sat in the back seat. She said he was following Tyrone, saying, Get back in the car, you trippin', when the gear shift got stuck and she couldn't stop the car. Prosecutors pointed out that this information about the gear shift was not mentioned in her statement, which also said she had chased after Tyrone as he ran through the lot. She claimed she didn't realize the gear shift information was not in the statement because she was so distraught. She also said, I guess the detective put what he wanted to put. In the defense's closing arguments, they stated Keisha was guilty of being drunk and killing Tyrone, but was not guilty of murder. The prosecutors, however, stated she had acted with malice and intent to kill her husband. They claimed she changed her story on the stand to avoid responsibility for the crime. Prosecutors also used her blood alcohol content as evidence, stating it could have lowered her inhibitions. The jury began deliberations on October 5, 2012, and continued the next day. The jury asked five questions before returning with a verdict of guilty for the charge of first-degree murder. 
The sentence was immediately delivered, as first-degree murder carries a mandatory life imprisonment sentence. Keisha immediately started wailing, my babies, my children, before being let out of the courtroom by a bailiff. Some of Tyrone's family began cheering once her family left, but Tyrone's father hushed them. In August 2014, Keisha appealed her sentence. The first issue she brought up was that the judge allowed the detective's statement to be reread for the jury, but refused to allow Keisha's testimony to be reread when they asked. The judge argued that it would take too long and that the reading of her testimony would not provide the jurors with her demeanor during her testimony. The defense attorney argued that it was unfair for the jurors to only have the prosecution side. The judge said the trial was not that long and the jurors could have taken notes. The judge said he was going to ask them if they could be more specific and that your recollection controls. Defense argued that they were being very specific. The jury did not ask for her testimony again, but did ask for more instructions on the difference between first and third degree murder. The appeals court ruled in favor of Keisha on the issue. Their opinion read, Upon our review of the certified record, specifically the testimony provided and withheld during the jury's deliberations, we conclude the trial court flagrantly abused its discretion in denying the jury's request to rehear a portion of the appellant's testimony. Throughout trial, appellant argued that her police statement, as presented by the Commonwealth, was incorrect. Appellant testified as to her recollection of the incident during trial. Appellant's police statement and testimony each illustrates a different criminal intent. Further, the trial court frustrated duty by permitting the rehearing of only one version of the underlying incident. The jury asked to review approximately six pages of Keisha's testimony, and the detective statements they were allowed to review was the same length. The appeals court also ruled on the judge's comments that jurors should use their notes during deliberations. Jurors' notes are not considered evidence, and therefore were not a satisfactory substitute for reviewing Keisha's testimony. Keisha was granted a new trial. On June 10, 2016, Keisha entered a guilty plea for the charges of murder in the third degree and possession of an instrument of crime. On September 7, 2016, a sentence of 15 to 30 years for the murder charge, plus one to two years for the possession of an instrument crime, was imposed. The sentences were set to run concurrently. However, on October 4, 2016, Keisha filed a motion to withdraw her guilty plea. The motion was denied, and Keisha is to serve her sentence with time served considered. Support for True Crime Fan Club is brought to you by Incipio. Incipio offers legendary protection for all of your devices from phones to AirPods to tablets, they obsess over their tech to protect yours. Now, here's the thing. I drop my phone pretty much every single day or I bang it into a wall because I'm just a klutz and I don't pay attention to anything that I do. So my phone is abused regularly pretty much every day because I just don't pay attention. Did you know that every 12 organic core cases reduces one pound of plastic from landfill waste? That is amazing. And that's why I love Incipio so much. 
Organic Core Clear is made up of 100% compostable materials that reduces landfill waste by naturally re-entering the environment from where it started. All Organic Core Clear cases are also wireless charging compatible, and there's a lifetime warranty, so they've got you covered. Don't forget to recycle the packaging after you get your new case on your phone. All of the packaging is 100% recyclable with eco-friendly water-based ink. So whatever you're up to, just know your phone will be protected from drops as high as 14 feet. Organic or Clear is available to purchase now at your local Verizon or online at verizon.com. In another case where the vehicle was the murder weapon, we are going to a neighboring state, Ohio. Ashley and Ron Rico Schutz were married on July 14, 2015. Ashley had three children, the youngest with Ron Rico, and he was the father of five. They had a big wedding to mark the beginning of their lives together and had a baby not long after. Ashley was the breadwinner of the family, while Ron Rico stayed home and took care of their baby and their other children. Money, work, and the blended family began to take their toll on the marriage. According to friends and family members, Ashley had a short temper and was arrested in 2005 for misdemeanor assault and domestic violence. She had rammed her car into another car, which was driven by her baby's father. On May 28, 2016, Memorial Day weekend, Ashley and Ron Rico began arguing. Ron Rico phoned his mother Charlotte around 1 p.m. and asked her to come get the baby. He said Ashley was threatening to leave and take the baby with her. Charlotte said they were still arguing when she arrived, but had stopped when she left six or seven hours later. Charlotte phoned Ashley around 10 o'clock or 11 that night, and Ashley assured her everything was fine. However, 30 minutes later, Ron Rico phoned his mother and told her, this bitch is crazy, and was acting like she wanted to hit him. His mother said he was acting hysterically, and she could hear Ashley yelling in the background. Ron Rico said he was going to bring the kids over to Charlotte. Another 30 minutes went by, and Charlotte received another phone call from one of Ron Rico's neighbors. The neighbor told her to get over to Ron Rico's, because there was an emergency. She immediately left and arrived at the house as an ambulance was departing. She and Ashley rode to the hospital together, and on the way, Ashley told her she had left to go to her aunt's house. When she arrived, her aunt was not home, so Ashley returned home. On the way, she had a feeling something was wrong. When she arrived home, she saw Ron Rico lying in the driveway, but did not know what happened. About 90 minutes after they arrived at the hospital, Charlotte was allowed into intensive care to see Ron Rico. She went in by herself to find her son scared and in disbelief. He told his mother he and Ashley went outside and she got into the car. He stood in front of the car and she ran over him. She then backed up and came full throttle and ran over him again, this time dragging him down the driveway. Ron Rico said he wasn't going to say anything to the police and asked his mother not to as well. Charlotte spoke to her sister and a friend the next day, and they both said he told them the same thing. 
Charlotte's 10-year-old grandson and Ronrico's nephew, told her he had seen what happened. He had been at the house that day, along with his 8-year-old cousin. He said Ronrico and several friends were outside drinking beer and grilling. Later, after the friends had left, Ashley and Ronrico began arguing. Then Ashley grabbed her purse and left. According to the 10-year-old, Ronrico then took a bath before lying on the living room floor playing on his phone. Ashley came back and threw money in Ronrico's face. She said she was taking the baby and he'd never see her again. Ronrico told his nephew he was going to take him home, so he put on a shirt and shoes, then went out the back door. The nephew watched out his window and saw Ronrico standing in front of the car. He heard him tell Ashley to get out of the car, but instead, Ashley hit Ronrico with the car and knocked him down. Ronrico tried to stand up, but Ashley backed up and knocked him down again. His shorts caught on the bumper of the 2002 Chevy Tahoe, and he was dragged down the driveway screaming. His nephew ran over to Ronrico and started yelling for neighbors, who called 911. When Ashley returned home, she first jumped out of the car and said, I told you, Ronrico, before screaming, Who did this to my husband? Ashley offered to drive the 10-year-old home, but he refused to get into the car with her. However, Ronrico's nephew wrote a letter to the trial judge that contained contradictory statements. In the letter, he said Ashley had been on the phone. Even though she had promised Ronrico she was not going to the police, Charlotte decided to make the call. However, she had to complain to a lieutenant because no one would take her call. On June 10, 2016, Ronrico died in the hospital as a result of septic shock due to his many internal injuries. Two and a half weeks later, a detective from the Cleveland Police Department contacted Charlotte after he had reviewed the accident report and EMS statements. He visited the scene where he found no skid marks, but did find traces of human hair and skin further up the driveway, indicating Ronrico was dragged by the vehicle. The detective also found it telling that Ronrico's head was pointed toward the garage rather than the street. An arrest warrant was issued for Ashley Schutz on July 29, 2016, for murder, tampering with evidence, and obstruction of justice. She was held on $250,000 bond after voluntarily turning herself in. Ashley had been fired from her job as a manager and customer service representative for Safeguard Properties, where she had worked for three years. She also ran a business where she sold donated uniforms at low prices to nursing home employees. Ashley was also a member of a local church and volunteered at the Salvation Army with her children. Ashley had gone to stay with her sister the night of the incident and did not return to the house she shared with Ronrico. Although there were surveillance cameras in and around the house, her oldest son could not access any footage of the incident, although he checked both that night and the next morning. The case went to trial in March 2017 and lasted approximately a week. The jury deliberated over the course of two days and on March 29, 2017, returned with the verdict of not guilty of aggravated murder. She was found guilty of murder, two counts of felonious assault, and a count of vehicular homicide. She was found not guilty on the tampering with evidence charge. She was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison 
with all sentences running concurrently. After the jury found Ashley guilty, all 12 members wrote a letter to the judge criticizing the three officers who investigated the death of Ron Rico. The letter was hand-delivered to the judge right after the verdict was read, and the judge sealed it shortly after. However, Cleveland.com did print portions of the letter that was delivered to them by a juror. It stated, quote, As ordinary citizens, not police experts, we find the officer's behavior in responding to this incident to be inadequate and a disservice to the citizens of Cleveland. Jurors ensured the judge that their criticism did not affect their verdict, as the prosecutors were able to prove Ashley's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The responding officers, Ryan Corrigan and Brian Suchek, initially believed the accident was a simple accident. Ashley had told them at the scene that Ron Rico had run out of the house, jumping behind the car, and she did not see him. However, the officers had turned their body cams on as soon as they arrived at the scene, and the body cam footage shows a firefighter pointing out the damage to the front of the car. Ron Rico's nephew also spoke to one of the officers, and the body cam footage recording him telling the officer that Ashley had run over his uncle, pulled forward, then exited the vehicle like she didn't do it on purpose. The two responding officers did not contact a supervisor to come to the scene. The jurors wrote, According to our interpretation of the body camera footage, Officers Corrigan and Suchek acted in a flippant, indifferent manner by not taking witness statements and collecting more evidence while initially on the scene. The jurors also blasted the detective, Richard Cerny, who had taken the case two weeks after the accident. A trained accident reconstructionist, he did not do a reconstruction of the accident, did not seize the SUV for 20 days after the accident, and did not take photos of the undercarriage of the car. He also did not subpoena the security company for footage from the house. The jurors wrote that Cerny's investigation demonstrates a relative indifference unbecoming of a lifelong Cleveland police officer and a decorated detective nearing his retirement. They included that they appreciated the difficult job the officers had and thank them for their handling of the 2016 Republican National Convention. They added, However, in the neighborhoods we believe the citizens do deserve more, it is the police's duty to protect and serve. When it comes to the conduct of Officers Suchek and Corrigan on the night of May 28, 2016, we find that they simply responded and recorded. Officers Corrigan and Suchek were both awarded a Medal of Heroism for an event that occurred on November 18, 2016. They, along with several other officers, responded to the call of four males who had broken into an electric substation. They were not the first responders to the incident, but they assisted in a situation where the suspects fired upon the officers. The four suspects were taken into custody and a handgun was recovered. Ashley Schutz is eligible for parole on August 2, 2031. Her first parole hearing is scheduled for June 2031. In our final case, this happened in Arizona on November 10, 2012. Holly Solomon ran over her husband with their Jeep after an argument. Holly, pregnant at the time, 
was angry with her husband because he did not vote in the 2012 presidential election. The pair started arguing, and her husband put the car in park and got out. She got behind the wheel and started chasing him around a deserted parking lot. Her husband took refuge behind a light pole, then tried to make a dash for the road. She accelerated and pinned him beneath the vehicle on a curb. Her husband suffered several injuries, including a broken pelvis, but he did survive. She was arrested and charged with two counts of aggravated assault and was sentenced to three and a half years in prison and supervised probation. She had previously rejected a plea deal that would have removed the dangerous implication which would have offered the possibility of 15 years in prison. After her sentencing hearing, Holly cried and said she had been suffering an episode of mental illness and was being treated. Quote, I want to apologize. I still don't have memories of that day. I have been very sick and I am getting better. Her husband said he had a scar down his stomach that was a foot long, but the emotional toll was far greater. Learning to trust people to love again is going to be very difficult. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, facebook.com slash tcfcpodcast. And I can't get into my Instagram right now because I'm locked out, so if you happen to know anybody at Instagram who could get me back in, you can follow me at True Crime Fan Club Pod. And of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com.